O Lord, as we now come to your word, we thank you for it. We remember that it is sufficient. That it is sufficient for all things. Everything that we need to know about you, everything we need to know about ourselves, everything we need to know about our circumstances. It all comes from your word. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would use your word today to do your work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We know that your word is powerful. We know that your word is true, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible. Use it today, O Lord, to strengthen us, to fill us with courage, to fill us with conviction, to fill us with a desire to live for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, being the first Sunday of the month, uh, we are now uh, in a psalm again. I'll be preaching Psalm 31 today, so if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 31. That's what we do every first Sunday of the month. Of course, every other Sunday of the month, uh, we're in the book of John. But this week, we will be looking at Psalm 31. Now, last week, uh, when we were studying John's gospel, you might remember that one of the things I said, one of the things I noted in, in our sermon was how upset I get when somebody says something like, you know, if you just believe in Jesus, all of your problems will just vanish. They'll just go away. And of course, the reason that I get upset about that is it's twofold. Number one, because it isn't true. Uh, anyone who claims that they have no problems in life ever since they started believing in Jesus is not just an extreme optimist. They are completely out of touch with reality. Uh, that's the first reason that it, it gets me upset when somebody preaches something like that. But secondly, I get upset about it because it really sets a person up for disappointment. We looked at that last week. It sets a person up for disappointment with God. It sets a person up for disappointed with for being disappointed with the, the convoluted gospel that they've mistaken for the real thing. It sets them up for disappointment with Jesus and his gospel. It sets them up to be disappointed with it all. In fact, it sets a person up for the kind of disappointment that will eventually, most likely, drive them away from the faith. The only place that you can preach this false idea that believing in Jesus will mean that all of your problems will go away is in a place where your life, where your head isn't on the line, in a place where Christians aren't actively being persecuted. Because if you took that message to the underground churches in China or the underground churches in various regions, regions of India or Iran or, or believe it or not, Canada, they would laugh that preacher right out of the building. If there's anything, though, if there's anything that proves that being a child of God does not guarantee, does not ensure that life will be without problems, it's the Psalms. It's the fact that the Psalms are filled with cries and pleas of desperation from the children of God who are just like you and me. Now, you might say, well, they were Jews, they're not Christians, and I suppose there's a sense in which that distinction can and should be made. But at the same time, God has always had only one people, and that is the elect, those whom He has foreknown and predestined to become conformed to the likeness of Christ, according to the counsel of His perfect, unfailing, unthwartable will. So David 
He wrote a lot of the Psalms that we've been studying in this study. And we know that he was described as being a man after God's own heart. Nobody else has that title in the entire Bible. And yet his life was marked by sorrow, persecution, and quick trips to and from the line of despair. And the one thing that prevented him from crossing that line into the territory of despair was his faith in God. His faith didn't prevent troubles from coming upon him. No, he, he had plenty of troubles. In fact, sometimes his troubles were because of his faith in God. No, what his faith did was to bring his heart and his mind back to the Lord when troubles came. And he thereby sets a wonderful example for us to follow, particularly in the Psalms that he wrote. Psalm 31 is yet another song. Uh, These are all songs. The Psalms were all written as songs to be sung, which records a time of persecution and distress in his life. We don't know which one in particular for this particular psalm, But it's yet another passage of Scripture that instructs us in the way that we must go when we find ourselves in times of trouble. Now somebody might ask, you know, what kind of advice or counsel can we gather from something that was written over 2,500 years ago? And the answer is that what we find in Psalms such as this one is as relevant and is as accurate and is as timely today as it was the very day that it was written. David experienced troubles. In fact, he experienced troubles that were often greater than anything we've ever encountered in many instances. So whatever troubles we find ourselves in, I'm sure that David could, to some extent, relate to what we're going through. So the point of this psalm is that in times of trouble, our response must be to trust and to find refuge in the Lord. In times of trouble, our response must be to trust and to find refuge in the Lord. Let's start by looking at verses 1-5 to together. David writes, and by the way, in this pulpit Bible, it's titled, A Psalm of Complaint and of Praise. I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate, but the title of the psalm, uh, as they have it, isn't inspired. Verses 1-5, to In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Here we are immediately introduced to David's urgent plea. It is an urgent plea to God. He cuts straight to the chase, asking that God would hear him and rescue him from the snares and from the traps that his enemies have set for him. So he begins by saying, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. We should note that he's speaking 
of a present reality, something he has already done. He doesn't say, I will take refuge in you, although if he hadn't, that would be a wise thing to do. No, what he says here is that he already has done this. Now, to take refuge in something means to find shelter, uh, to find protection. It's a, it's a hiding place. It's a place of safety. It's a place of security. In his younger years, we know that David fled from King Saul, and he would find safety in the mountains of the wilderness around Judea. These mountains had caves and crevices that served as excellent places to hide when people were pursuing him, when his life was in danger. Out on an open plain, out in an open field, David and his very small band of warriors were no match for Saul and his army. And so what they would do is they would flee into the mountains where they could hide in these caves and crevices, which served as wonderful, wonderful places of refuge to find safety in times of great danger. And this is undoubtedly the imagery that David has in mind. This is what is going through his mind as he writes this psalm. Except his trust isn't in a physical rock. It's not in a rock. His trust here is in the rock. His trust wasn't in caves or crevices. His trust was in the God who made the caves. In times of trouble, David was confident that the best place of refuge available anywhere was in God's hands. The storms could come and the storms could go. The tempests could howl and roar. But David knew that if he took shelter, if he took refuge in God, nothing could touch a single hair on his head apart from God's sovereign will and decree. Nothing. So what David does here is he begins by considering the position he's already in and therefore the safety he already has in God. He isn't relying on his own knowledge. He isn't relying on his own strength or his own merit or his own wisdom or anything about himself. His trust is in God and God's sovereign divine favor unto his children. From his position of security, from this position of refuge, he cries out to God, let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. He doesn't, let us notice, he doesn't refer to any righteousness of his own. Undoubtedly, because just like you and just like me and just like everybody else except for Jesus Christ, he had no righteousness to speak of. And therefore, he had no righteousness to stand on. The basis of his plea, therefore, isn't his righteousness. The basis of his plea is God's perfect righteousness. Would the Lord allow the man who trusts in him and in him alone to be put to shame? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, how can the Lord permit the man to be ultimately put to shame who depends alone upon him? End quote. And the answer, of course, is he won't. He won't. In the end, God's people will all be vindicated. And those who sought to shame them, however that may be, whatever that might look like, those who sought to shame His children before men will be put to shame before God and His angels and His people. 
But the situation that David was in was urgent. His enemies would be upon him soon, and so David's pleas are also urgent. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly, he says. This is a bold request. But David knew that there wasn't much time. And he knew that God is a good Father who always has time to hear His children. He knew that he wasn't interrupting God. But often, that's our tendency to think, well, I'll pray. I will pray about this, not, okay, I'm dropping everything, I'm going to pray about it right now. No, it was, it was urgent. It had to be done in the moment. He knew that God would hear him no matter what. The prayer is an echo of what we saw in verse 1, where he says, Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. Now when you take verses 2 and 3 together, a lot of biblical critics have been very confused by these two verses because what he asks for, he immediately assumes that he has. And what we would say is, well, that's how faith works. Because you see his confidence in God's faithfulness to his children because what he requests in verse 2, he's already assuming, he's already grasping by faith in verse 3. He knew that God's honor was on the line and that God will always protect his own name's sake. And this is how we must respond to God's promises with faith. With faith. That's the means by which we grasp them, by which we lay hold of them. God's word reveals to us that God is merciful, that God is loving, that He is all powerful, all knowing, all wise. It reveals to us that He alone is all sovereign, and that nothing can and nothing will happen that He does not either cause or allow to transpire. Friends, it is one thing to know these things up here. It is another thing to know them down here. It's one thing to know these things intellectually. To be able to say, okay, I I know what the answer is, but it's quite another thing to believe in what the answer is. It's another thing to trust and believe and to stand on it. Think of it this way. If, if you were to go to a playground and, and find a balance beam, you'd have probably no problem walking across that balance beam without losing your balance. But if you put that balance beam 3,000 feet up in the air, suddenly you would have a very, very different experience trying to walk across it. Even if 3,000 feet up, even if it was still as stable up there as it is down here. Your ability to trust when it's low is very high. Your ability to trust when it's up high is very low. It's a different thing to trust your ability when there's something on the line, when it's urgent. Do you believe that God is all those things that we just talked about? Do you believe that God is omniscient, that He's, that he's all-knowing? Do you believe that He's omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty? Do you believe that He is all-wise, that He's sovereign, that He's loving unto His own? If you do, then pray that God would reveal these attributes through your weaknesses and times of trouble in order that you may know them not only up here, but down here. In order that you may know them not only intellectually, but experientially. That you may believe more fully in those things as David did. As James Montgomery Boyce notes, he says, you are, then be, 
should be the prayer of every Christian. End quote. This will give you not only the confidence that David had that God would act to save him, that God would act to rescue him, that we see in verse 4, but it will also give you comfort. Comfort to sleep in times of trouble. Knowing that if you are in the arms of God, you could not be in a safer, more secure place of refuge. And this is particularly needed, by the way, when death is near, or seems to be near, as it was for David. His enemies would have loved to have taken his life from him, but David committed his spirit into the hands of the Lord, where it could not have been more secure, where it was safe, and where he, like Paul, could say to live is Christ and to die is gain. We recognize the words that David speaks in verse 5, by the way, right? We recognize those words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. They're the words of an expression that, that gives a total and complete trust in God. Of course, these words would be also spoken by David's descendant, the promised descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, as his final words spoken from the cross But Christian, do you know that God will be unto you in death what He has been unto you in life? Do you know that? Do you know that if He's been faithful unto you in life, He'll be faithful unto you in death? That if He's been omniscient, all-wise, all-knowing, all those things, if He's been those things to you in life, He'll also be those things to you when death seems like it's near? He'll be sovereign that He'll be faithful, that none will pluck you from His strong hand. Saints throughout the ages have quoted these words, have prayed these same words as their final words. John Huss, the Reformer, when he was being burned alive at the stake, once the bishop who conducted the ceremony of his execution by saying, and now we commit thy soul to the devil, John Huss responded calmly in faithful peacefulness, by saying, I commit my spirit unto thy hands, Lord Jesus Christ. Unto thee I commend my spirit, which thou hast redeemed. End quote. God will be faithful to hear and honor that prayer. Our spirits and our lives could not be in a more secure place than in the hands of a sovereign, all-powerful, unthwartable God. And as Christians... Our experiences should lead us to a progressively higher and higher view of God. We must learn to see God for the rock, for the fortress, for the refuge that He is for His people in all times and circumstances, but particularly in times of trouble and distress. So, Christian, let me just encourage you to learn as early as you can to lean heavily on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine of God's sovereignty can bear every ounce of your weight and a million more. God is a Savior to all who take refuge in Him. Like David, in times of trouble, our response should be to trust and to find refuge in the Lord. Samuel Rutherford said this, he said, quote, Think not much of a storm, upon the sea when Christ is in the ship.
End quote. Now as we follow the ebb and the flow of this psalm, we move from David's plea to his passion. And in David's case, he has a passionate zeal for the honor and the glory of God's name. It's a passion that we too would be wise to imitate. Let's continue looking at verses 6-8. to David continues writing, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Do you see the contrast there in verse 6? I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. There's a connection there. There's a correlation there. See, the thing is, everybody is supremely devoted to something or someone. That's what we've seen in John chapter 12. Everyone is supremely devoted to something or someone. Every person on the face of the planet worships. The question is, what or whom do they worship? To what are they supremely devoted? To what are you supremely devoted? And this is an important question because the object of a person's worship is going to affect everything about them, including their actions. Make no mistake about it. If a person will not be supremely devoted to the one true living God, if a person will not worship Jehovah, whose standards for ethics and morality are not only found in Scripture, but are inscribed upon the human heart, according to Romans 2.14, then they will worship and follow the ethics and morality of some other God. An idol. A vain idol. And that idol is vain because on that final day of judgment, that idol will not serve as a refuge or a comfort or a protector of those who bow before it. The question is, then, why would David hate those who worship them? And the answer is because they hated what David loved and treasured the most. They hated David's God. They hated Jehovah. David was saying that he rejected those who rejected his God, the one true living God. He was thus like the wise man that we see back in Psalm 1, who refused to walk in the counsel of the wicked, who refused to stand in the path of sinners, and who refused to sit in the seat of scoffers. He did not trust them. Rather, his trust was in the Lord. Unlike those who rejected God, David tells us that he will rejoice and be glad in God's loving kindness. Hold on to that word because we're going to see that word, loving kindness, three times in this psalm. It's an important word and we're going to come back to it. But David tells us of four ways that the Lord expressed this loving kindness toward David. David faced imminent trouble, and God did four things. First, look at verse 7. First, God saw his affliction, and David knew it. God didn't just ignore David. He saw and he tended to David in his time of need. Second, God knew the troubles of David's soul. 
He knew the distress that David was going through. He was completely aware of David's circumstances and what David was feeling. And he was also willing to do something about it. Third, verse 8. God rescued David from his enemies. He rescued him from the traps that they had set. Though his enemies sought to take his life, God protected him from their schemes. Fourth and finally, God set his feet in a large space. That is to say, he delivered David from the troubles he faced. How could David not rejoice? How could David not worship God? How could he not be glad and rejoice in God's loving kindness? How could he not worship and praise God in light of the sovereign provision of safety that David had received? Now, of course, David has not only been rescued in this situation. This wasn't the only time David was rescued by God's sovereign provision of safety. No, he was rescued countless times before. And ultimately, the spiritual rescue that David received was the greatest rescue that he received. Friends, has God shown you this kind of loving kindness to rescue you from your spiritual danger? From spiritual danger? From an outpouring of God's wrath? If you believe in Christ, then yes, He has. Yes, He has. The fact that you are living and breathing, in fact, is a testimony of His grace. And if you're living and breathing and believing, it's a testimony to His grace and His loving kindness unto you. If you have been rescued spiritually, if you have been given grace to believe, if you've been drawn to Christ as Jesus describes in John 6.44, then you have. You have been rescued from your greatest threat already. And that is God's just and holy wrath. How can we, how can you, Withhold praise. How can you not rejoice and be glad in light of God's loving kindness unto you? Like David, in times of trouble, our response should be to trust and to find refuge in the Lord and to worship the Lord in response to the loving kindness He pours out on us every day. David's struggle is so much like ours when we're in times of trouble. Have you ever been in a time of distress or trouble and you kind of go back and forth? It's like if, if you set your mind on things above, if you set your mind on, on the Lord, you have a moment of peace, but then all of a sudden you, you go back and you remember, oh, I've got this situation I'm trying to deal with. And, and you kind of just go back and forth. Have you ever had that happen? I, that's a daily reality for me almost. David knew what that was like, and that's exactly what he does. He goes back and forth between what his heart receives in faith and what his eyes and his mind perceive before him. His heart will be filled with comfort while his mind is filled with distress. Have you been there? David can relate. Even for the most mature, even for the most devout Christians, life can feel like a roller coaster in this sense. And thus the psalm now moves from his passion back to his perils. Let's look at verses 9 to 13. David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. This section really brings us back to the reason that David wrote this psalm. If we read this section carefully, we see that verse 13 starts with the word for, uh, which can also be translated as because, which tells us why, starting back in verse 9, David was feeling this sense of distress. So verse 13 tells us uh, what's outward. Starting in verse 9 to 12, we see what is inward. Uh, we see that terror is on every side. That's the cause of his distress. And of course, this was a reality that David often felt throughout his life. But reading this part of the psalm in reverse, in verses 11 to 12, we see that the result of this danger, of being surrounded by terror on every side, was that David faced reproach. Especially, he says, with his neighbors. That is to say that people, even those who are closest to him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't want to be around him. Why? Why didn't they even want to be seen with him? It was because David was a faithful man, and as a faithful man, he had a way of inviting danger. And people instinctively try to avoid those who draw danger to themselves. The irony here, of course, is that while David was abandoned by his neighbors, by his fellow countrymen, he was never abandoned by God. His neighbors were ready to throw him out and be done with him like a broken vessel, there's not much that you can do with a broken vessel except throw it away. But God is in the business of redeeming broken vessels, of taking a broken vessel and using it for the glory of His name's sake. When His children, therefore, are in times of trouble, God is unlike people who scatter. God remains near in times of trouble. Because He was abandoned by people, verses 9 and 10 tell us that he was so filled with grief and so filled with sorrow that he reached the point where his strength was failing and his body started growing weak. What David needed in that moment was just a reminder, an assurance of God's graciousness unto him. Maybe you know what it's like to reach that point where you just need that reminder. It's there, but you just need to be reminded of it. Maybe you can relate to the need to have a reminder of the assurance of God's graciousness unto you. And this is one of the reasons that we've started including a time of confession, corporately and, and individually, followed by an assurance of pardon uh, in our weekly services. This is where I encourage you to memorize Scripture, to put it to memory, to, to Put it in your heart. Hide it in your heart because you're going to need it. Uh, Romans 8.1 is a great verse that gives us an assurance. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
How can you not feel assured by that? That's, a, that's an excellent verse to, to memorize. It's very easy to put to memory. Uh, it's one of my go-to verses when I need an assurance of the graciousness that God has given unto me. First uh, John uh, 1.9 is another excellent one. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's another great one to put to memory. Receive these assurances. Believe and receive these assurances of God's graciousness unto you in faith. And believe them enough that you'd stand on them. That's what true faith does. You know, if I didn't think that uh, this ground up here could, uh, could withhold my weight, do you think I'd be standing here? No, I'd go find someplace else. But I believe that it'll hold my weight. So I stand here. And it's the same thing with faith. That's what faith does. It says God will be true to his promises and I'm going to stand on them. I believe it enough that I'm going to stand on them. I'm going to rest on them. They are there for your benefit and they are there for your comfort. Memorize them. Memorize these assurances. Memorize these promises. Hide them in your heart because you don't know when you're going to need them, but you will need them. The ultimate comfort, of course, is found in knowing that the same God who is with us and the same God who is for us and the same God who dwells in us holds our days in His hands. What can you encounter? What circumstance might you come across that God has not allowed? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Nothing. So next, David finds comfort once again in that truth. And he moves to petition God on the basis of that. So let's look at verses 14 to 18. David writes, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. The beautiful thing here is David remembering that the times of our lives, like David's, are marked from our perspective by things like feelings of, of uncertainty and unpredictability and instability. From our perspective, that's how things feel. The word times in verse 15 refers not only to the days of our birth and the day of our, of our death, but it also includes what's in between. It includes seasons and changes that occur throughout life in between our birth and our death throughout life. Calvin notes this. He says, quote, He does not use the plural number, that is times, in my opinion, without reason, but rather to mark the variety of casualties by which the life of man is usually harassed. End quote. See, life is unpredictable from our position. We like to think that we're in control. We like to think that we can make plans on going this way, right? Only for the times in our lives to change and we have to go that way. We may feel like we are in control of our times, but we're not. 
and we never have been. One day, David would be the beloved king of Israel whom everybody loved and adored. He's the one who won them victory on the battlefield and the next day he's running for his life from his enemies. And everyone, including his neighbors, has abandoned him. And God was sovereign over it all. Despite the danger that he's faced, however, David's faith, his trust, was settled. And it was unwavering. He was anchored to an immovable rock, and his faith would not be shaken. As he prays, Your times are in, or my times are in your hand, he acknowledges that every circumstance he faced, every danger he encountered, every trouble that threatened his well being and safety, they were all under God's sovereign control. His times were in God's hands. If every circumstance and every situation that we face is under God's sovereign control, let me ask you this, and if His sovereign control is exercised in light of His unfailing loving kindness unto His children, then what was there for David to fear? If God is sovereign, if God is all-powerful, if, God is all, if He loves David with this immense loving kindness that David's talking about, then what was there for David to be anxious about? Nothing. If God was for David, then who could come against Him? Paul writes, we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That's what he says in Romans 8.28. Do you believe that? That he's causing all things to work together for your good? And that is not your comfort, by the way. That's not the highest good. What is the highest good? That you would be grown in Christ's likeness. And to that end, God is orchestrating every situation that you face. Every second of your life is pointed in that direction by God's sovereign decree. And nothing can change that. Do you believe that? Then grasp it and cling to it by faith. And if you do that, then you can save what Paul says in Philippians 4.11 where he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. In the end, be assured of this, that none who take refuge in the Lord will be put to shame. As for His enemies, who very well may be your enemies too, by the way, they will be put to shame. Their times are also in God's hands. Rather than seeking vengeance against them then, and rather than taking matters into our own hands, the wise thing to do is what David did. David trusted that God would deal justly and rightly with the people who were giving him trouble. And the same goes for us when people give us trouble. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never take your own vengeance, beloved, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now there are some people who will say, the God of the New Testament doesn't do that. That's New Testament. It's the same God that David 
knew and loved, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That takes the burden off of us. Our job is to be at peace with all men insofar as we're able to. While it might look like those who give us trouble are getting away with it, whether that's by martyring Christians, or by persecuting them, or harassing them, or it definitely includes those who attempt to prevent God's people from coming together to gather to worship God as He has instructed. But God, in the end, will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. They will be repaid by the Lord. Our job isn't to take vengeance into our own hands, but to trust in the God who will deliver perfect justice upon His enemies. Our job is to take refuge in God and to obey Him, knowing that our times and the times of our enemies alike are all in God's hand and under His sovereign reign. So, confident that this was a future reality for those who are persecuting Him, David's heart was filled with praise for God's goodness. As he awaited final deliverance, his petition turns to praise in verses 19-22. to Let's look at those verses. David says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has made marvelous His loving kindness to me in a besieged city. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. As David reflected on what was going to be coming to his enemies, he also reflected on what was coming to him and to all of God's people. He set his mind on the infinite, all-sufficient supply of grace and goodness that God has stored up for those who fear Him. This wasn't just a future reality for him. It was also a present reality. And the same is true for us, friends. And because it was a present reality, David was confident that God would protect him and would preserve him from the plots and the slanderous words and schemes of evil men. It's on the basis of God's grace. It's on the basis of God's goodness unto His children that David proclaims, Blessed be the Lord. Why? For He has made marvelous His loving kindness to me in a besieged city, David says. Now, a besieged city is a city that's, that's under attack. And even though a thousand arrows and darts have been shot into the city, not a single one has even grazed David, proverbially speaking. And that's because David was shielded by God's never-failing loving-kindness. Now we've seen that word loving-kindness three times here in this psalm. In verse 7, in verse 16, and now in verse 21. The Hebrew word there is a very important word. The Hebrew word is chesed. It refers to a love that God has only reserved for His children. It's a covenant love. And therefore, because it's a covenant love, it's an unbreakable, unshakable, never-failing love. 
God is always, always faithful to His people because God is always faithful to His covenants. It's because of this loving kindness, this said, this covenant love, that God remained faithful to David. And it's because of this covenant love that God remains faithful to us. There were times when David's mind would be just overwhelmed by his circumstances. Anybody know what that's like? Of course we do. We're humans. And it would cause him to cry out things like, I'm cut off from before your eyes. In other words, from his perspective, what he was feeling was, God, I feel like I've been cut off. I'm not with you. You're not with me. I'm just on my own here. That's what he would be feeling. That's what he would be thinking in fear of what he faced. But whenever his mind would go off in that direction, his heart would drag him right back, comforting him and strengthening him with the confidence that God had heard the voice of his supplications. And God hears yours as well, friends. And for that reason, like David, in times of trouble, our response must be to trust in the Lord and to find refuge in Him. David concludes this psalm with a proclamation. Verses 23 and 24. He writes, O love the Lord, all you His godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. So in light of his reality, not what he feels, but what was real, and that is the fact that he had refuge, he had security in God's hand. In light of that, he did the natural thing. He proclaimed God's goodness to all of God's people. He proclaimed God's faithfulness. He turns at this point to the people of God. And by the way, that includes you and me and all saints throughout the ages. He turns to the people of God and reminds us to love the Lord. As if we need to be reminded. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Constantly. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, He answered that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. That is the most important thing that we can do. And yet we never do it perfectly. And so our basis for coming before God can't be our ability to keep even that one simple command. So what basis do we have to come before God and to have any comfort at all? The one who did uphold this commandment. And that is the Lord Jesus there is nothing more important than making Him the supreme object of our devotion. And we need to be reminded to love the Lord regularly, even in good times and even in bad times, perhaps especially in bad times. All of God's people throughout the ages should love and be devoted supremely to God because He preserves His people. Our times are in His hands, not in the hands of our enemies, even though it feels like we may be in the hands of our enemies. We never are. We're constantly in the hands of God. He will preserve us, but He will, David says, He will recompense the proud doer. 
That is to say that He will have the final word and the final judgment against those who in prideful arrogance assail and rise up against the people of God. We have something, we have a comfort, we have an assurance that the atheist doesn't have. And that is that justice will be served. So we don't need to fight for imperfect justice. We know that perfect justice is a future reality. It is coming. God will pay His enemies back for their wickedness. We should be strong, therefore, David says, and let our hearts take courage, knowing that God will defend and will protect and will preserve all who hope and trust in Him. Friends, God gives His children every comfort and every assurance. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that He has given us every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. So He gives us every comfort and every assurance in times of peril. But He offers none of that to His enemies. He offers nothing to His enemies except the present moment to repent and to believe in His Son in order that they would be spared from His just and holy wrath. In order that His life, His perfect life, His perfect work would be imputed, would be credited unto them. That's the only thing He affords them is the opportunity right now in the present moment to do it. To repent and believe. Friends, we live in a time when God's people are being persecuted and assailed in ways that we have never experienced before. Indeed, in ways that our country and our continent have never, ever, ever seen. It's never been more difficult and it's never been more dangerous to be a Christian than it is right now in our country. But that means also that there has never been a better time to put our ultimate trust in Christ. To hear what His Word says about times of trouble and to say, God is my rock and I'm going to trust in Him. I believe that my times are not in my hands. My times are not in my enemy's hands. My times are in God's hands. We must grasp by faith the promises of God unto His elect. We must remember that God has planned and is present in all of the events of our lives. They come as a surprise for us, but not for Him. And that he, He's using each and every circumstance we face, including times of peril, including times of persecution and trouble. He's using all of these circumstances that we face for our good and for His glory. God has always worked through a faithful remnant. And He's the one who preserves the remnant. He has always preserved the faithful in order that God would be glorified in the testimonies of the storms and the struggles that they've survived because of God's faithfulness. Therefore, even when the world gives us trouble, even when the world stands against us, even when they try to take our times into their hands, Christian, do not be downcast, but take courage. Troubles may come and troubles may go. Should they come, they're for our good. Should they go, it's for our good. So why despair? Why be anxious? Why have anxiety about what 
has come or what may come tomorrow if God is all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and works all things for our good and His glory. If that's true, why would we worry? It's easy to know it up here. It's a challenge to believe it down here. But that's what sanctification is all about. That's what growing in Christ's likeness is all about. And so press on confidently, Christian. Press on confidently. Press on faithfully, knowing that God is still those things. He is still sovereign. He is still all-powerful. He is still present with His people in every circumstance we face. Our times are in His hand, and thus, if by faith we've taken refuge in Him, if Christ's death has given us life by grace through faith, then we could not be more secure. Let's pray. Our most gracious and merciful Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it addresses our feelings. And we confess to You, Lord, that it's so easy to to think about what our feelings are feeling rather than what Your Word says, rather than the promises that You've made, rather than Your attributes. But we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to set our mind on things above in order that we may find comfort and strength in You, not only in hard times, but when times are easy. Teach us, O Lord, to not love the things of this world, to not cling to the things of this world, including our very lives, but to cling to your promises, to cling to your word, to cling to Christ, in order that even in times of trouble, we would be conformed to Christ's image and he would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.